You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all. Today we begin a new uh, three-part series called A Tale of Three Gardens. We're going to start in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. That's garden number one. Next week, it'll be the Garden of Gethsemane in uh, Matthew 26. That's garden number two. Third week, it'll be the, the Garden City of New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22. Originally, I was going to call this uh, series a garden tour, but I want to highlight the, the story aspect in, in this series of the Bible, the narrative of Scripture. I want to help us see over the next three weeks the grand sweep of God's story, uh, the tale, a true tale that God himself tells. So the series title is A Tale of Three Gardens. And now that you've heard the word tale four times in the last 20 seconds, I'll go ahead and use the word story from now on. Because when I hear tale, I think big purple dinosaur swinging his tail around. I didn't want you to be thinking that. And now that I've said it, you will be thinking that. But may God help us to put Barney aside. So here's where we are. For the, the purposes of the sermon, it's going to be story today. For the purposes of the sermon series title, it's tale. You got it? Got it. So the Bible is God's story, one big unified story. And friends, this is important for us because we humans need a story to make sense of our lives. Do you feel that? Do you understand that? Let me illustrate. A few uh, years ago, there was a publication in Long Beach that uh, no longer exists called The District. And they had an article in there that I've saved all this time. It's titled, All the Lonely People, Welcome to Your Quarter-Life Crisis. By the way, I'm going to read a bit here, and a little bit longer than what I normally read from other sources. Um, I will do my very best to keep it interesting, and I would ask you to do your very best to listen well. Do we have a deal? Okay. So in this article, the author invites us to imagine a day in the life of a couple we probably know. He's 27, she's 26. They've been sort of dating for a while now, but they're not willing to commit to each other. He likes her, but doesn't know if he always will. She can't decide if she likes him more or less than the other two guys she's seeing. He bikes to work at an advertising agency where he uses his master's degree in English to proofread ad copy, spends several hours reading music blogs and watching movie trailers. He periodically uh, Twitters updates about his workday to his 74 followers. He doesn't really hate his job, the article says, but he feels as if his skin is crawling with vermin most of the time he's there. So he has a plan to move to Thailand or maybe write a book or maybe go to law school. At her government job, she instant messages her friends and mostly ignores the report she's drafting because she's planning on quitting anyway and has been planning to quit for a year. She spends her lunch hour buying boots that cost slightly more than her rent and immediately regrets it. He listlessly works through lunch, then goes to the bar after work to meet up with some university friends where they talk about their jobs and make ironic jokes about other people. But back at home, he wonders why he feels so gross and empty after spending time with them, but it's better than being alone. She walks to the house she shares with three friends and spends a few hours on celebrity gossip websites. Then she clicks through the Facebook photos of girls she knew in high school posing with their husbands and babies, and she simultaneously judges them and feels a deep pit of jealousy 
and a strange kind of loss. When did this happen for them, she wonders. They both eventually fall asleep, late and alone, each of them wondering what it is that's wrong with them that they can't quite seem to understand. This phenomenon, known as the quarter-life crisis, is as ubiquitous as it is intangible. Unrelenting indecision, isolation, confusion and anxiety about work and relationships and direction is reported by people in their mid-20s to early 30s who are usually urban, middle-class, and well-educated. Those who should be able to capitalize on their youth, unparalleled freedom, and free-for-all individuation. And here's the, here's the big tie-in to today. Here's how the article goes. They can't make any decisions because they don't know what they want, and they don't know what they want because they don't know who they are, and they don't know who they are because they've been told they can be anyone they want to be. The article goes on. It doesn't give us any hope or suggestions for helping people in the quarter-life crisis. What do those in this sort of crisis need? And I would suggest it's something that we all need. Whether we can relate to this particular couple or not, what we all need is something bigger than ourselves to give our lives meaning. Isn't that right? We need something that tells us who we are. They can't make any decisions, says the author, because they don't know what they want, and they don't know what they want because they don't know who they are. There's probably few things that cause more confusion and depression than not knowing who you are, why you exist, where you belong. It's that feeling of being dislocated and untethered and insecure about every step you take, and yet you forge ahead because what else can you do? You look for meaning, you look for love and acceptance and a place to belong, and you do your best, and at times your worst, as you're just trying to figure things out, but because there's no script, there, there's no direction, no vision for your life, you just do this for a little while, and then you do that for a little while, and then whatever comes next. How frustrating. What we all need if we're to avoid meaningless, hopeless drifting through life is something big that ties together all the various aspects of our life, the, the beautiful things and the broken things. Something so big, in fact, that it can do that very same thing for everyone. And I'd like to suggest that there is something that does this, God's story. There are a lot of stories you can tie your life to, a lot of stories you can live out of. But only God tells us the whole truth about who we are, where we belong, what our lives are for. Let me say one more thing about God's story before we get into his story. Uh, contrary to the idea that God wants to come into your life, I think much better to think God wants us to come into his life, right? I was thinking about this, like, God, would you come to my two-bed, one-and-a-half-bath townhome in Kansas and spruce it up? And he says, no, I'd like you to live with me on the coast of New Zealand. Anyone want to go to Kansas? All right. Done. Thank you. The Bible is one big story, the story of God. And his story is primary, uh, not ours. The, the late, late, great Eugene Edwards, uh, sorry, Eugene Peterson wrote, when we submit our lives to what we read in scripture, we find that we're not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. Are you ready this morning to get into God's story? 
Yes, me too. So a tale of three gardens. That's what I've tagged this series. In the first garden, Eden, uh, we're going to see God as creator and humanity fall. So creation and fall. The second garden, Gethsemane, our focus will be on redemption. And then in the third garden, the garden city of New Jerusalem, it's new creation time. So over the course of these three weeks, we'll talk about creation, fall, redemption, new creation. The, the bulletin cover has these four images that follow those four uh, steps in this big, great story. This is a lot of big picture stuff to cover in three weeks. And I know that. And through it, I'm confident that God would have us encounter him in big, life-changing ways. And for some of that, us, that means grounding us in him, bringing stability to our shaky lives. Maybe you feel like your life is really shaky. May, may God bring stability over these three weeks. For others of us, God wants to remind us who he is, how great he is, humility for our proud hearts. Maybe some of you are really proud or you're inclined to that. God wants to humble you over the next three weeks, remind you who he is. For all of us, more Christ-likeness. That's what he longs for. This is what God wants for us, transformation of life. Is this what we want for us? Is this what you want for you? Amen. Let's pray and ask him for help. Let's bow. Lord, would you do for us more than we ask? And would we ask a lot of you? Help us, Lord, in, in this moment, in this next 20 minutes. Help us, Lord. You who made heaven and earth, help us now, we pray. Amen. Amen. Imagine reading the Bible for the first time. You're just starting out. You open to page one, and if you have a Bible, you can open to page one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we read. And now imagine uh, you're there, not just reading, but you're actually there at creation. You settle in for the show that you're about to see. Awe would overtake you as you watch God, like an artist with a huge canvas before him, take up his cosmic brush and just go to work over the six days of creation. His intentionality is amazing. There's nothing haphazard. No randomness about creation. Days one to three, he, he creates the habitats. Days four to six, he creates the inhabitants. Right? So days one to three, he, he puts up the housing. Days four to six, he invites tenants to come in and live in what he's made. We can't even fathom what it would be like to, to actually witness this, can we? The creativity and power of God. God creating creation as it's described in Genesis 1 and 2. Think about the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. Or if you go to national parks, the, the mountain range and, or wide open fields, and it's just, just incredible. That pales in comparison to what it would be like to see God creating. Our souls would explode at the wonder of it. I think about the six days of creation like a, a compact fluorescent light bulb. You flip the switch, it starts off dim, and then it gets brighter and brighter and br until it's full brightness. So day one, flip the switch. And then each creative act, each successive day adds more light, more light, more light. It's getting louder. It's getting brighter. Finally, on day six, 
God, it's as bright as it's going to be right then. God creates man and woman in his image after his likeness. And I don't know when you read like things that crescendo like that, what happens in your head, but I always hear like, ah, right? The heavenly choir. Can you hear the heavenly choir singing on the sixth day? Maybe you can't hear it. Maybe you don't like choirs. That's fine. Can you hear Louis Armstrong? I don't know how he got there, but he's there too. And he sings, and I would appreciate your help, and I'm not going to try to impersonate Louis. He sings, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom. Please help for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Excellent. Louis is right. It is a wonderful world. God saw to it. The first chapter of the Bible ends with these words, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He appraises his own work. What a wonderful world. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. That's the first uh, Point in the outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. As we keep reading into Genesis 2, some details get added to the account of chapter 1. By the time we come to the end of Genesis 2, we see God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, which is Eden, under God's gracious rule. That's going to be really important as we follow the storyline of the Bible. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And when we think about the place, the place that God gave his original creation, this first couple to live, it was a garden. And think botanical garden, not vegetable garden. The love and provision that God lavished on this couple was incredible. Picture Adam and Eve standing there with their bare feet digging into the rich, dark soil of Eden. They're barefoot, right? No Birkenstocks. There's no clothes in the story yet. So just their their feet right in the soil, sun on their faces, the most beautiful trees and landscaping you've ever seen, colors that just explode the senses, wildlife all together in harmony, no one's fighting. There's fruit, the most delicious fruit you've ever had, those strawberries and mangoes, nothing's tasted like this. There's a river running through it too. Clean, pure water splashing up against the banks. This is the home God made for his people, Eden. Every need here was taken care of. Every relationship here was as it should be. Let me, let me say that again. I want you to think about your needs and your relationships and, and what's missing. I want you to long for this day. Every need was taken care of. Every relationship was as it should be. Every relationship. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God that was one of perfect harmony and sheer joy. They walked with God. They talked with God. Perfect uninterrupted fellowship with their maker. No fear, no shame, only love. Their relationship with each other was incredible too. The first time Adam saw Eve, he burst out in poetic song. They never fought. They never went to bed angry. They didn't have kids yet. They never threw things at each other or gave each other the silent treatment. 
No one ever had to sleep on the couch or go home to mom, which would have been impossible. They actually had what we read about on Facebook, but know that people are lying, right? I have the perfect husband. I'm married to the perfect wife. No, you're not. Quit lying. They could say that, and they actually were. They weren't lying. Their relationship with themselves was also what it should be. They were naked and not ashamed. They weren't ashamed. They didn't experience shame. They didn't even self-shame. Their their souls were at rest, perfect peace, no angst, no need for counseling. Their relationship with their home to the earth, it was what it ought to be. They were put there to work the ground, to tend it, to keep it. The ground didn't give them any trouble. They served it and it produced and provided for them. Total pleasure and delight in gardening, no toil. Some of you gardeners long for that day. This is how God's story starts, Genesis 1 and 2. What a wonderful world. It was paradise. Can can you feel it? Close your eyes with me for a moment. Can you imagine what this must have been like? Not a cloud in the sky, just a bright, shiny day. The sun's, it's perfect temperature on your face. There's a light breeze. You hear the water. You see the animals. The, The colors are amazing. The fruit's just dripping with goodness. Everything as it should be. You're in perfect relationship with God and, and your, your, your partner and yourself and the earth. There's just perfect harmony. It was paradise. Say it with me. Paradise. Say it like you want it again. Paradise. Yes, it was paradise until it wasn't. Right? How did that happen? Things start out so great. We, we, we have our happy home, Genesis 1 and 2. H- how did that get wrecked? Why is the world now filled with idolatry and shame and senseless murders and hurricanes that, that destroy people's lives and wreck economies and cruelty and injustice and abuse and greed? Why? What happened? That's, that's it. We keep reading the story. We come to the end of Genesis 2, and we're thinking, oh, this is great. And then we keep reading. We turn the corner, Genesis 3. That's what happened, right? Genesis 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. If you're familiar with Genesis, uh, you probably remember there's two specific trees that are named in chapter 2. There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Under God's gracious rule, this first couple, Adam and Eve, they have so much freedom, so much abundance is there for them. God even gave them dominion over creation. They had delegated authority over everything that wasn't God. The free use and enjoyment of everything God had created. This is amazing. There's just one thing, God said, one prohibition, one thing that's off limits, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Do you hear how liberal, how generous God is? You can eat of any tree in the garden, all those trees, all those trees that you see. He didn't even say the tree of life was off limits. Any tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
So God, imagine him. I've made a wonderful world for you, Adam, my son, Eve, my daughter. It's all yours. There's only one way to ruin it. And, and I've told you what that is. Steer clear of that one tree and you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You're better than fine. It'll be paradise forever. Well, you know what happens, right? You know what happens. The tempter tempts that serpent, that serpent the devil. The couple bites and sin enters the world. It was paradise and then it wasn't. One fatal act and God's good creation is spoiled. God's glorious creation is followed by a great fall from such great heights to such great depths. And we might uh, be reading the story and, and maybe you do this with the disciples too. We're reading and we think, how could they? I would never, how could they do that? Adam and Eve, rotten people. The truth is we've all spoiled our wonderful world. We keep reading the story. We get into the New Testament, Romans 5, other passages make it clear that we all sin by nature and by choice. We're born bent and we choose bent. In a mystical way, we were in the garden with Adam and Eve. They represented us and all of humanity when they believed the serpent's lies instead of God's true word. By that one act of disobedience, we're all condemned. We all die. Genesis 3, I don't know what else to call it. It's such a downer after you read Genesis 1 and 2. Death for the human race. And in the meantime, while we wait for death, those four wonderful relationships I talked about, now they experience strain and corruption, right? Adam and Eve enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God, but now because of sin, when they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they hide. They've never hidden from God before. Adam and Eve used to have nothing but love and care for each other. Now, because of sin, there's division between them. Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat? God asks Adam. Well, the, the woman you gave me, God, it's her fault. Adam's love song for his bride had been replaced by a Taylor Swift song about an ex. <laughs> Trying to be relevant for the youth. Yeah. Also, where the man and the woman were able to stand in front of each other and God, totally naked and unashamed, now because of sin, that day is gone. The eyes of both of them were opened after they ate and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why? Why? To cover their shame. And where there was once a toil-free relationship with the ground, with, it, with the earth, now because of sin, pain and sweat have replaced delight and pleasure in work. Cursed is the ground, God says to Adam, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Everything's changed. Every relationship that brought them delight has been spoiled by sin. They had peace with God they had peace with each other. They had peace with themselves. They had peace with the earth. But now that's gone, done, finished, over. That's how devastating sin is. It, it, it's, we call it the fall. It's a fall from grace. Worship, marriage, psychological health, vocation, it all gets tweaked. It all gets distorted here in Genesis 3. 
And so if we're reading this, if we start off with such a great story, and then we read about this in chapter three, something in us should, should long for a return to those good relationships with God, where our needs were met. We should, we should be longing for a better day. Something about hope should spring up in our hearts, something hopeful. And so is there any hope? Is there hope for a restored home? Is there hope for restored relationships? Can the corruption be countered? Can the spoiling be unspoiled? What do you think? Yes, yes it can. Yes. What do you all think? Yes. yes. Good. You guys are way more faithful than the 930 service because they were unsure. They were like, eh. <laughs> our wonderful world which God created is spoiled by our sin, yet God promises someone who will make it wonderful again. And we get a glimpse of that, in Gen even right there in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, God curses the serpent for his part in all the mess. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Right there in the garden, on location at the scene of the crime, God announces hope. It's not yet clear at this point in the story how it's all going to play out. But in the darkness of sin, we see a pinprick of light and a future offspring who will beat the head of the enemy, dealing a death blow to the one who brought death. It's barely noticeable, but it's there. It's a promise from the creator that he will make our world through Eve's offspring wonderful again. Or in the words of the apostle Paul to the Ephesians, in Christ, that is Eve's offspring, by the way, in Christ, all things, things which are divided, distorted, bent and broken, all things, things in heaven and things on earth will be united again in Christ there's hope, friends. So a tale of three gardens. Uh, this morning, I know it's, it's a quick tour, right? It is. It's a lot. Creation and fall in the Garden of Eden. Next week, we'll consider redemption in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's a very quick preview of next week. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeds, Right? We ate from a tree that wasn't ours to eat from. And because of that, Jesus died on a tree that he should not have deserved to die upon. But he did. And he did it for us. What a great God. That's redemption. God's love on display in the life and death of Jesus. My hope over these three weeks is that you and I would have our feet firmly planted in the rich soil of God's grace, that we would live out of his story and not the, the fractured, incomplete stories that we so often settle for, that we would have a better sense of who we are, where we belong, and what our life is for. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you and we would ask that you would deliver us from small stories and self-reliance. You are a God of abundance. 
so shower us with your abundance. And if it's too much for us to take in, enlarge our capacity to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.